Well, we're going to do what Liz asked us to do and take a moment and pray for our students this morning. And we also want to pray for um, kind of more broadly uh, students at HSC and Fishers. There was a student that was killed in a car accident. Apparently he was an HSC student that had just recently transferred this year, uh, transferred to Fishers. Um, His name was Jake Rebel. So I want to pray for our students on the retreat. Some of them may be hearing uh, about that and then uh, we'll, we'll launch into the message. Father God, we just want to pause and acknowledge your presence in our lives, and I want to ask you right now that you would be speaking to our students as as they're um, in the last part of their retreat, uh, as they're taking time to listen to you. And Father, I pray that you would speak to them what each of them needs to hear, and I pray for the students at both Hamilton Southeastern High School and Fishers High School, kind of in the aftermath of Um, Jake's passing. I pray for his family in particular and just pray that you would be near to them. Can't imagine what they're going through as parents, um, but just surround them with people and comfort and love them. And Father, I just pray that as we jump into the message that you would speak to us through your word today. Uh, I pray that you help me get out of the way and we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I was only a year out of college when Grace Church launched, and if you're new around here, Grace Church is our sister church with which launched us, Grace Fishers, and being part of that church launch really changed the course of my life in a lot of ways. Um, And one of the ways that was really significant, or one of the events that happened, was that first year that the church launched, I would join a small group. And it was the, I was a little nervous because it was the first time I'd ever been part of a small group like this before. And it was also, I was also a little nervous because I was one of the youngest people in the group. I was one of the only singles. Most of the folks that were in the group were married couples. And then I got even more nervous when I found out what we were gonna do. And this is actually one of the things that our ladies groups uh, here are doing right now is sharing our stories. Now, there's a lot, of way to sh- a lot of ways to share stories. The way we were doing it in that group was every week, somebody took an hour, hour and a half to share their stories. Little, little, little pressure. But what was cool is we began to share our stories with one another. Uh, the relationships began to go a little deeper a little deeper and a little deeper. As people were honest about their hopes and their dreams, about their disappointments and even their failures, uh, God began to knit us together and, and we began to understand one another's stories. And in particular, it went a lot deeper one week because a gal um, who had been carrying a load of shame for years from something that had happened in her past, um, shared with her husband, and then actually shared it with the group. And she found this incredible freedom. Um, she found this incredible healing and just a renewed sense of hope. She was a changed woman. And others in the group were changed. I was changed by this experience. In fact, it's part of why my wife Susie and I started getting involved in small group ministry. Uh, after we got married, and it was really the thing that planted the seeds for about seven years later for me leaving my job, my IT job, and coming on staff with Grace to work with small groups. Now that story reminds me of one of the things that Jesus came to do here on earth, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but just as a reminder, we're in week two of our series Upside Down, 
and we're looking at the question, what did Jesus come to do? And it's really the question that takes us there. We kind of have to ask the question first, who is Jesus? And this was a question everywhere Jesus went, everything he did and said, this question was swirling around him because he said a lot of provocative things. And um, people were trying to answer that question. And it was a question that was important for them to answer. It's a question that's important and critical for us to answer as well. So last week, we talked about how Jesus came to give us life through relationship with him. Talked about how he's a good shepherd, how he uh, speaks to us, and he wants to lead us to a place as our good shepherd of life and wholeness. And he wants each one of us to experience that, but he doesn't want it just end there. In fact, what we'll see in just a moment is he's taking those individuals that are encountering him, that are finding life uh, individually, and he's bringing them together and he's building something together. And Jesus came to create a purpose-filled community. Now, I want you to grab your Bibles or jump on uh, the Grace Fishers app Um, And we're going to be zipping through this. I also, while I pause there, I want to say hello to our friends that are online. Glad that you're you're here with us this morning. And um, so we're going to dive into the scriptures. Now, first I'm going to just do do a quick overview because we see that this was part of Jesus' purpose, that he came to create a purpose-filled community just from the things he did, not even the things that he said. I mean, Jesus was a great teacher and a prophet, and he healed people, but we begin to see that he's building something. He's leading a a bit of a movement, and he's connecting these individuals together into some sort of community, and he also starts to give ministry away. I mean, he, he, as he invites people to follow him, he starts to put them together in this group. In fact, he identifies 12 of of them that are going to kind of be with him day and night, and they follow him. And um, as he starts to build this community, you see the religious leaders um, get a little bit nervous. And Jesus is starting to turn their world upside down. Because in that day, the way that you encountered God was you went to the temple and the priests were there to intercede for you. And Jesus is beginning to teach these men a different way of life, that they can encounter God Um, as they begin to know him, they can encounter God as they begin to know one another. And that can happen not just in the temple, but that can happen everywhere that they go. So we see, you know, Jesus's life starts quietly. He's a craftsman. And then in his early 30s, he begins to invite these disciples to follow him. And he quickly begins to hand off the ministry and the things that he's doing to these men. Um, It's not just about Jesus having this group of people following him. He's beginning to prepare them and give them responsibility. And so we see it with the 12. He commissions them and he sends them out in pairs to begin to do many of the same things that he's been doing. And then later he does it with another 70. And eventually we'll see he does this with all of us. So we see Jesus living this out in his life, but then we also get some pictures from the scriptures where he begins to show us what this thing, what this community is supposed to look like. And well, the first image that I want to share with you is from Matthew chapter 12. And just a little context in this passage, we're going to be down in verse 48. But Jesus has healed somebody else. It's created a bit of a stir again because he did it on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is kind of going back and forth with the religious leaders. Um, they're questioning if he's, if he's good or bad. And he's saying some pretty direct things to them. 
And then we see this moment where Jesus' mother and his brother show up, and it's pretty clear that they're coming to get him. They're coming, they kind of want to pull him aside. They're a little nervous about what he's doing because we realize we only much later did Jesus' brothers really believe who he is. And I just, I've got two brothers, and I think about if I started going around, you know, calling myself a prophet and, and declaring these things that seem a little crazy, I think my brothers would come get me as well. And so Jesus is talking to this crowd and they say, hey, your, your mom and your brothers are here and they want to talk to you. And Jesus has this unusual response. He says, who, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he points to his disciples and says, look, these are my mother and my brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my sister and my brother. And Jesus is beginning to communicate them, and this was very early on, that he's creating this spiritual family. Now, we know that families are filled with all kinds of people, parents and kids and grandparents and grandkids and, you know, aunts, and sometimes you get a crazy uncle thrown in the mix. Um, most of us have some, a crazy uncle somewhere in our family. But in most cases, even though families are made up of all these different ages and generations, unless you've got a really unhealthy family, you begin to make this work. You figure out how to make it work together. And it's not just a relational thing. It's united around a common purpose. In fact, Jesus says, anyone who does the will of my father is part of this family. And we know from being parts of families that being part of a family, you, there, there's things, privileges that you enjoy, but there's also responsibilities that you're given. We learn what it means to be a part of a family. Now, we also all know that family can be really messy. You probably know that from your own experience. Um, I love the image that I get, and I don't normally recommend, uh, you know, TV shows, but if you're looking for something to binge watch, I would encourage you to watch The Chosen because... Um, it's a fascinating glimpse of these disciples that Jesus has pulled from different walks of life beginning to interact with each other and some of the tensions that begin to emerge. And so Jesus is talking about creating this spiritual family. But then a little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, we see another example of what he's talking about. And we see this interaction with Peter, and it's in Matthew chapter 16. And it starts in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the son of man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked him, who do you say that I am? See, Jesus was curious in the answer that they had. Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. This term Messiah means anointed king, and um, the Jews were looking for a king that was going to come restore their nation's glory and restore who they were as a people. And it's interesting, it says they went to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus usually traveled around in the towns around the Sea of Galilee. This is two hours distance north, and there's speculation that Jesus might have retreated with his disciples to get them away from kind of the prying eyes of the Jewish religious leaders to have this conversation. This was a really important conversation. And Jesus' response tells us a lot. He replies and says, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. 
Now I say to you that you're Peter, which his name means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. You see, Jesus affirms Peter's answer that he is the Messiah, this anointed king. Now, I don't have any, I don't think the disciples fully understand what this meant, but this was part of why the disciples started to follow him and Jesus was beginning to affirm this, but they didn't, they didn't fully understand until much later what this, what this meant. And Jesus answers Peter's affirmation with his own affirmation of Peter, when he calls them, gives them this nickname, Rock, or renames them the Rock. And there's a lot of there's a lot going on in this passage about Jesus talking about building uh, building something on Peter. I'm, I'm not going to go into all of it, but what in essence I think Jesus is saying is, Peter, I'm building something, and you're the first of many who are going to proclaim who I am, and I'm building this community, and it's going to grow and multiply the people who make the same declaration that you make. And it, when it says he's building his church, this word here is a Greek word, ekklesia. And what that word would have meant in their culture, and this is the first time that this word shows up in the New Testament, it means a group of citizens that's called together for a common purpose. They were there to, they were called together to attend to the concerns of their city. So they're called for a common purpose. Jesus is calling what he's building a group of people that have a shared purpose. Now, this word is used after this point. The Apostle Paul, who planted many churches and writes a lot about the church, uh, used this word, and it, and it applies not just to an individual congregation, but it's used to talk about what Jesus is building throughout the ages and throughout the world. So it means the big C church, but secondarily, it's also used to mean um, like a church that meets in a specific location. So it's me, you know, it, we could say the church that meets at Grace Fishers. Because I think one of the things that, that unintentionally began to happen is the church got more organized and they began to have buildings and then you begin to translate language is the word church began to mean building. And a lot of times when we, somebody drives by on Oleo Road and they point to this orange building and they say, hey, that's a church. Um, they're talking about the building, but we know and believe that the church, this is the church. It's not the building. It's the people that are gathered. It's the people that are gathered online. It's a group of people who are living together with a shared purpose, and that shared purpose is to experience life in Jesus and also to share that experience with others. But there's one final image that I wanna take a look at that I think is important for us that describes what this community is that Jesus is building. And it's actually from the Apostle Paul, the one that I mentioned was planting churches. This was one of his favorite images and he uses it in multiple places. And so he uses it in Romans chapter 12, verse four. And he says this, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We're many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. So this is a relational image, but it's also a purpose-filled image. And you know, Paul talks about how we together, the all the churches together and the people that fill those churches uh, represent Christ in this world. And so we have, while we have a corporate purpose, but Paul is also referencing the fact that we individually have a purpose, just like a body fits together and there's different pieces of a body that provide different things. 
God put his church together to, um, to help it. Uh, he brought individuals together to help it grow and be strengthened and multiply. And so this, these three images, a spiritual family, this gathering of citizens, this spiritual body shows us what Jesus is building. It's part of what he's trying to accomplish in the world. But the reality is if you look around the world, you see lots of groups, you see not-for-profits, you see lots of organizations that are trying to come together for a common purpose. And so I think there's something that would be missing if we stopped there and said, this is what Jesus is building. And I think Jesus kind of fills in the missing pieces right before his death and resurrection. And we see this captured in the Gospel of John. We, used, uh, we read from John's Gospel last week. And one of the things I said last week that I love about John is that he captures these really intimate moments with Jesus and his disciples. And we see here five chapters of the, one of the last and the, most, the longest conversations that's captured. Uh, and it's from, it's, uh, we're going to look in John chapter 15, but it's five chapters of their interaction. And Jesus emphasizes to them two things. He says, your, your community needs to be marked by love and power. And so, for instance, he says things to them and he repeats this, these themes over and over. He says, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. Jesus came to create a community that's marked by love and power. And then he goes on to say, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you, will know that you sent me and that you sent them or that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus is saying, God the Father sent me and the way that you all relate and love one another is going to be the proof to this world uh, that God the Father sent me. And this isn't a mushy, sentimental kind of love, but a practical, self-sacrificing love that Jesus lived out and modeled for his disciples hours after he had this conversation. Now, I think sometimes we get real complicated about what does it mean to, to love our neighbor and what does it mean um, to, to practice this love. And one of the founding pastors of Grace Church, and he was also kind of a spiritual father to me, is actually the pastor that hired me um, and he was a friend. Jim Falk used to say, love the person in front of you. He said, it's that simple. If we all learn to love the person in front of us, I think the world would view the church differently. Now, as a side note, uh, some of you may be aware that Jim passed away about a week and a half ago, and I was reminded this uh, at his funeral yesterday because person after person talked about how Jim not only said love the person in front of you, but he modeled it in simply by giving the person uh, that he was with their attention and his love and how he believed in people. It was a beautiful image and reminder of a legacy of what it looks like to live a life of love. But if you look at this conversation with Jesus and his disciples, he also talks about power. Now, he never uses the word power, but you see he's talking about power. And so he says things to his disciples yet like, yes, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. See, Jesus is reminding that he's the source, just like we talked about last week, that he's the one that brings life to us. 
And then he goes on to tell them multiple times in this conversation that after he leaves, because he's beginning to tell them, I'm leaving, and then I'm, after a while I'm going to leave permanently, that his, he's going to send his Holy Spirit to be their source of power. And that the Spirit is going to bring them and equip them and enable them to love and do all the things that he's calling them to do. Now at this point, this is all largely theoretical. Jesus has a few hundred followers at most. Uh, his disciples honestly really weren't very good disciples. In fact, we see him disperse, you know, when he's arrested. But something happens about 40 days later. Um, you know, Jesus, after his death and resurrection, um, he eventually ascends, returns to heaven, and tells his disciples, I want you to wait. And they wait and for about 40 days. And one day they're gathered and they're praying. And something happens, that Holy Spirit that he talked about comes upon them and it begins to transform their community. And it explodes in the midst of this little uh, gathering that they have and literally thousands of people begin to know Jesus and respond to his message. And then all kinds of crazy stuff starts happening. Like um, they begin to share their possessions to one another as they see someone in need. And they begin to, there are miraculous things that happen, like somebody is healed. Um, and then this community becomes a multi-ethnic, multi-language community as people that are drawn in from, uh, that speak different language and people from different ethnicities begin to gather together. And what Jesus did when he sent his Holy Spirit begins to turn the world upside down. And it began there, but it, it didn't end there. In fact, that ecclesia, that gathering of citizens that started there uh, has now continued on for 2,000 years of history. And what began in that little pocket in Jerusalem has now spread throughout the world. And it looks like a lot of different things. It looks like large megachurches, uh, multi-campus churches like Northview and Traders Point. And it looks like smaller community churches like us that gather here. And it looks like small congregations of house churches that meet throughout our country and around the world. And I'm reminded of churches uh, like our friends Innocent and Nassim Sindhu, who pastored a small congregation in the Middle East that had to meet in secret and would gather quietly and faithfully every week to worship this risen Jesus. And we're all connected to one another. My wife and I were having a conversation um, at some point, I don't even remember when we had this conversation, where she asked me a question and she said, how many churches are there in Fishers? And so I started going through and I'm listening, okay, this church and this church and this church. And so I, I think I told her a number and she said, the right answer is one. And by the way, that's a picture of our relationship. She's a pretty smart cookie. Um, I learn a lot from my wife, but uh, that's a picture of what we're talking about here. There's one church that God has built across the world and in Fishers, and it's part of why we look for opportunities co to cooperate and work with this church that God has planted in Fishers. So what do we do with this? There's a lot we can do with it, but there's three things I'm going to specifically mention for us to begin to think about. And these aren't things that we can immediately do this morning. These are long-term things that I want to challenge us to think about as a congregation. And the first 
which I think is gonna be a long-term task and challenge, is to rebuild community. You know, isolation was a significant problem before the pandemic, but I think this COVID pandemic has actually created a second pandemic and isolation went from being bad to really difficult. If you pay attention to the stats on things like overdoses and suicide attempts and even car accidents, which are significant, have increased over the past couple of years after dropping for almost 20 years, you can see that the past two years have not been good to us. And building community isn't something new. It's kind of been at the core of who Grace Church is. It's why we focus on building communities from kids and students to adults. And it's part of one of the most important things that I think that we can do about being for families. It's part of what, one of those things that we do. It's part of why we start small groups in kind of that pre-K age. They start to gather in littler groups because they're, they're beginning to be big enough that they can begin to do it. And by the time they get into second grade, the desire is for them to have a regular small group leader. And a great example of this is a man named Jim Schweffel. Jim started as a small group leader of a group of boys in either first or second grade when we were still meeting in Portable Church, um, this group of boys, and he's still their group leader seven years later as they're now ninth graders, as they moved in high school. And these boys love Jim, and they, um, Jim loves them. And by the way, if you are a small group leader, thank you. Whether you're a small group leader of kids or students or of adults, the work that you do of helping us build these smaller communities that help us be connected to one another is so important. We all need spiritual big brothers and big sisters and spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. So thank you if you're a group leader. But what about you? Are you connected here relationally? Are there people that know you and maybe know a little bit about your story? Now, I know you may not be ready for a small group or that may not be the place that you're ready to start, but God's also given us gifts and abilities. And so you may be, maybe an easier place for you to start is to say, okay, what gifts and abilities do, has God given me and how do I need to begin to use those to strengthen and encourage this body that he's planted? And I know it's, there are seasons like the past couple of years where it's been difficult to be in community and to do life one another. But I think it's important, Lord willing, as we begin to come out of this, that we begin to rebuild uh, much that I think has been lost. So that's the first thing is to rebuild community. And the second thing that I think we need to do is remind ourselves that we have a purpose. This is true both corporately and individually. Corporately, there's a simple way you can do it. As you walk out the doors and head out the front doors, um, if you look up a little bit, you see on the wall, it says, we make disciples of Jesus and launch them into the mission of God. That's our corporate purpose as a congregation. It's what God has called us to do. And we need to remind ourselves periodically that anything we do here needs to align with that purpose. But again, individually, I think we need to figure out what our purpose is and figure out how do we contribute. And again, small groups are a great way to do that because we can begin to do that on a small scale as we serve one another. And then lastly, I think it's important that like Jesus said, that we need to do this in a way that's marked by love and power. 
And sadly, I don't think the church has always been a group of people that's always led with love, and I think we need to do this. Now, there's no one specific action step because I think this is a way of life. I think we begin by loving the person that's in front of us. But the truth is, if we aren't going to be a purpose-filled community marked by love and power, then we might as well close the front doors, sell the building, go home, and get on with our life. Because it's what Jesus has called us to. Now, I'm going to end this message in the way that I began with a story. And this story is a little riskier, and it's also a little harder because it's more recent. But Susie and I are part of a small group that was launched by Jeff and Vicki Fowdy and Brent and Susan Harris a couple of years ago. And it's a group that we love being part of, and we've gotten to see this lived out firsthand in our small group over the past couple of years. You see, uh, uh, our friend Brent, uh, Susan's husband, was diagnosed in June 2019 with an aggressive form of cancer. And while Brent and Susan explored treatment and tried um, to do all sorts of things that were medically possible, and as we prayed that Brent would be healed, and we thought he was in several moments, um, he wasn't. In doing Brent's fu funeral in November of that year was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do as a pastor. It was also one of the great privileges of my life to speak on behalf of a friend that I love deeply. It was also a reminder that sometimes healing isn't for the person who's sick, but sometimes the healing is what happens in us as we walk through the grief that we experience. But the story isn't about Brent's illness um, or even about God's faithfulness in the midst of this. The story really, or at least part of the story, is about community. You see, Susan journaled the ups and downs of uh, the, the experience that they had, and eventually she put it in a little book titled, Thy Will Be Done. And I pulled it off the shelf this week, and I realized that Brent and Susan's story was a story that began in community and it ended in community. And her little book literally begins and ends in community. The first four pages of the book are full of acknowledgments and I counted the names. There's 46 names of people, many of whom sit in this room or attend worship here on the weekend. Their names of family, friends from work, friends from small group, women from her women's small group, or people from their couple's small group. You see, Brent and Susan had invested themselves in community, and we began, they began to see that lived out through the difficult days that community returned to them. But Susan, the story that she captures also ends in community. As Susan wrote these, these words during the last days of Brent's life in the hospital, she said this, God made us for community, and now I understand at my core why. They rarely speak to me. She was talking about the people in the room, her community, and that's because she was focused on caring for Brent. But rather engage with my family and bring us food and drinks. They're in the background, but I know that they're here, and it brings me such comfort. They hug me, they hold my hand, they kiss away my tears, spending amazing amounts of time loving on my children and are ever present. 
These are my people, the ones who will carry me through this time. Excuse me. And the time beyond when I'm sure Brent will no longer be by my side, they will stick by me, cry with me, encourage me and remind me that God still has a purpose for my life. I love them and would do the same for them. And I know you would, Susan. They're a part of my inner circle, just like Jesus had an inner circle among his disciples. I have one too. And these words that I think we need to hear today, we all should. Now, one of the incredible and redemptive things about Susan's story is to see the way that God is renewing her hope and renewing her sense of purpose. And it was a great joy to see this past fall, to see her rediscover uh, part of her calling, which is to work with little kids. And she's a teacher in our preschool now. And as God is refilling her with a sense of his love and purpose, I love that she's pouring it into this next generation of little kids who are the first time hearing that God loves them and has a purpose for their life. I want to just take a moment and pray for us um, as we transition. Jesus, I just want to say thank you. Um, thank you that you didn't leave us alone, that you've given us your spirit to dwell with us, but you've also given us the gift of one another and Father God, I just thank you for what I get to see you building, what we get to see you building here at Grace Fishers. Even walking out into the lobby after the first service and seeing this community standing around and talking and people sharing and seeing lives together. What a privilege of getting to see you live this out um, here and experience this. And I pray, Father, in the days ahead, that we would embody what you've called us to do and to be even more. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.